From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I'm Khalil Bendib. This week, we mark the ninth anniversary of the death of celebrated Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish, who passed away on August 9th, 2008. NYU professor Sinan Antun will read some of Mahmoud Darwish's poems that he translated. But first, we speak with San Francisco State University professor Dr. Abab Abdulhadi about the attacks by Zionist groups and the university administration on her personally and against student groups speaking up for Palestinian rights on campus. Abab Abdulhadi is the director of the Arab, Muslim, and Ethnicities Diaspora Studies Program at San Francisco State University. Vomina producer Josh Wilner spoke with Professor Rabab Abdulhadi about the lawsuit and harassment against her and her students. The lawsuit is bogus, it's full of inaccuracies, misconceptions, falsehoods, and outright lies, basically, which is something that uh, the pro-Israeli lobby has been known to do. They basically cover up what Israel is doing. They try to launder Israel's reputation in U.S. public opinion, in the world, international community, and so on. So we should not be surprised that they are also trying to make up all sorts of things in order for them to scare off people. The fact of the matter is that the Know Your Right Fair, yes, Jewish Voice for Peace was present, it was invited, it was one of the groups that was invited, it had a table, it actually signed up 14 students uh, that day, many of them who they said to Jewish Voice for Peace organizers that they were Jewish students and from Hillel. So they claimed that the Know Your Right Fair was scary, was dangerous grounds for Jewish students, was dangerous grounds for Hillel, that Hillel did not feel comfortable going there. doesn't make sense, since Hillel were there and voluntarily gave their names and signed up the list for Jewish Voice for Peace. The claim that this was an unsafe environment for Jews is also unsubstantiated and bogus, because there are Jewish Voice for Peace, and there also there are many students at San Francisco State and faculty who are Jewish, who are also and do not support Israel, who say that Israel doesn't speak in their name. So this whole thing about trying to lump all the Jews across time and place all over the world into one monolithic uh, manner that says that all the Jews are represented in this party, actually is in self-antisemitic. That is incorrect, that is historically inaccurate, and mm-hmm. actually does disservice to the struggle against antisemitism, which is a real struggle and should be waged exactly the same way that we're waging struggle against racism, we're waging struggle against anti-blackness, against Islamophobia, against anti-Arab discrimination, sexism, homophobia, all the bad injustices in the world. And so it is the same way that we need to talk about it. So you were the only faculty member. What types of staff members did they go after? And why do you think you were the only faculty member named? I think I'm the only faculty member is because I run a one-person program, the Arab and Muslim and Diaspora Studies. I started it in 2007. I was hired by San Francisco State in order to build a program based on recommendations of a president's task force. In 2002, uh, after there were also attacks on Palestinian students, after the genuine of Palestinian students was sanctioned and uh, prevented from operating for six months, and the task force from all sorts of people in the community with all sorts of backgrounds and political views and beliefs and so on came and said that there needs to be, among the recommendations, a senior faculty member to mentor and advise Arab Muslim Palestinian students. San Francisco State, five years later, in 2007, in 2005 and six, actually did the search, and they hired me to start this program. And 
uh, one of the conditions for me coming to join San Francisco State, I was the director of the Center for Arab American Studies at the University of Michigan Dearborn. For me to leave my position as a director of that center, which was the first of its kind in the world, and I was actually the first uh, director. There were interim directors before, but I was actually the first director of that center, and I had a good job, and I had an office and staff and everything. For me to leave and come to San Francisco State, I came because I was very excited that San Francisco State was the site of the 1968 student strike in 1968 that actually gave birth to the College of Ethnic Studies in which the Ahmed program would be housed. It didn't have a name there. Some of the universities were saying Arab and Islamic Studies, and I said, no, because if we're not doing Islamic scripture, it should not be called Islamic Studies. We're studying Muslim societies and communities. We should call it Muslim. And anyway, my condition was that I would not come unless I have a critical mass. And as a result of that, in my contract, the university committed to hiring three faculty members, me and two other faculty members, to build the program. In 2009, Palestinian students invited Omar Barghouti, one of the co-founders of the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, and a member of the Boycott National Committee in Palestine, to come and speak during the anniversary of the Palestinian Cultural Mural honoring Professor Edward Said. The Zionist groups at San Francisco State and outside, including the Jewish Community Relations Council, Hillel and others protested, and as a result, after the event, the university president canceled the searches, and then before he retired, proceeded to delete the lines from the budget. This is why I'm the only faculty member. This is actually, Ahmed now is a one-person program. Since 2010, I've been running it on my own. I'm teaching all the required courses. I advise the students, required and elective. I supervise students who want to do research and thesis and so on. I advise student groups, I speak, I represent to the community, to the university, I represent the university community, I do fundraising, I do scholarship, I coordinate with other people, I work with community groups. Basically, I'm a one-person program. But the Lawfare Project, and with this lawsuit, what they are trying to do, the real objectives, we believe, what they are trying to do is they are trying to end advocacy for justice in Palestine, teaching, scholarship, research and advocacy at San Francisco State, and basically delete the social justice mission of the university by basically getting rid of me, getting rid of the Ahmed program, getting rid of Palestinian students, generally not Palestinians, and anybody who dares speak up for Palestinian rights at San Francisco State. And one of the ways to do it, if they get rid of me, the program is going to collapse because I'm a one-person program. This is the problem mm-hmm. of the token. We know that historically. And this is what they are trying to do. And for them, San Francisco State is sort of like a line in the sand. And actually, in one of the, the reports, they said that they will have the Hillel director as boots on the ground. Boots on the ground is a military term. They said, and it's quoted in one of the, um, I think, Northern California Jewish bulletin. They said they're going to have the director of Hillel as boots on the ground because they are unwilling, the pro-Israeli forces are unwilling to accept that this is a movement that's spreading all over the world, that the United States, finally the U.S., and on grassroots level, people have historically supported Palestine. But now mm. more and more and more and more people are actually supporting justice in Palestine, in the United States, joining the rest of the world's community and saying, we part of the humanity. We do not accept injustice in Palestine. And for them, it is unacceptable to do that. So they want to stop it once and for all. And we see that also in the NTBDS in the Senate. We see that in the California legislators. We see that everywhere. And we see that also in the White House, of course, because they get their cue 
from Trump and the people in the White House, and we saw their response to what happened in Charlottesville and so on. What is going on is this is part of the attack on any dissenting voices, striking with Palestinians, thinking that if you attack Palestinians and you can get rid of them, you can extend that and attack all dissenting voices anywhere on any campuses. And this has been going on at Trinity College and Princeton, everywhere. You saw what happened in Charlottesville. This is going on to kind of silence any dissent silence, any challenges to the injustices that are being propagated by the administration in collaboration with the ultra-right, with the neo-Nazis, with the white supremacists, and with the Zionists. So they are thinking that we will be the first line. They will get rid of us. They will go on and do it to other campuses. And we are saying, no, we're not going to accept that. We're going to fight it. This is unjust, not right. This is part and parcel of legitimate scholarship, legitimate teaching, legitimate research, legitimate advocacy. We are actually part of the world community. We are part of the international consensus. They are in the minority. We are in the majority of the world. We saw that here in Berkeley when the right wing came the first time last school year at the Milo Yiannopoulos event. The right wingers brought Israeli flags with them. Exactly. And because there is very strong collaboration between the two. I know that there's been a really large, and this is something we hear about a lot when there are legal campaigns, is a smear campaign on campus with flyers and those sorts of things. Can you describe that situation and go in a little bit to the players? We've been targeted for a very long time, and we do know that what happened, and let me just give a little bit of history. This, in 2010, a group named the Ra'ut Institute in Israel came out with a report calling it how you're going to combat the delegitimization network. The delegitimization network, according to the Ra'ut Institute, is anybody who advocates for justice in for Palestine, including the big BDS movement, including everybody. Remember, this was 2010 right around the time after the vicious attack on Gaza in 2008-2009, and around the time, and I think it was either before or after the attack on the Mavi Marmara, the ship that went to bring supplies and medicine to Gaza, and it was attacked by the Israeli military, and they killed people who were on board. It was a Turkish ship. So the Raoult Institute came out saying, this is how we need to confront them. We need to delegitimize them on campuses. We need to attack them. It took a few years for it to sink in for the pro-Israeli groups, and a network started forming. And actually, there is a very good report that is published in 2015 by the International Jewish Anti-Zionist Network. It's called The Business of Backlash. And it's actually 200, almost 200-page report in which uh, I, Jan, and others, and I was one of the people who read the report, but I wasn't one of the main authors of it. They basically went and they investigated how these groups that call themselves 501c3 nonprofit they get tax relief from the government and so on, are basically going around uh, receiving millions of dollars. And they get it from Adelson, Chedlan Adelson, the Casino mogul, from the Koch brothers, from the Vladi Foundation, from the Koret Foundation. I mean, really, a lot of people who are ill repute. Okay. And the groups within this network include, and the groups who attacked us, Amcha, which has two members, one in uh, UC Santa Cruz and one in UCLA, one um, professor emeritus at UCLA and a lecturer at UC Santa Cruz. They receive a lot of money from those, uh, I think, two or $300,000 a year for their budget. At least that's what we know of. They began attacking us in 2013. They targeted a celebration of the Palestinian cultural mural by the students, and they started claiming that we are advocating anti-Semitism and so on. It was, again, bogus, all of it bogus, and they continued for the whole year. At the same time, they were joined by a group called Stand With Us, which is very active in California, and it is one of the main grantees by the Koret Foundation. Then they have a group, David Horowitz Freedom Center, who we know what David Horowitz mm-hmm. is. And we know, by the way, David Horowitz is a very strong ally of Milos, 
and he basically one of the main advocates against sanctuary campuses and one of the main Islamophobes named by the Southern Poverty Law Center, as well as being one of the major anti-black racists in the country. And this is all according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. So David Horace was one of them. There is another group uh, that is called the David Project. There is the Lawfare Project that calls itself the legal arm of the pro-Israeli community and its director, Group Goldstein. This is the group that's uh, suing us with a mega law firm in, in uh, California. They basically say that they are going to make the enemy pay and they are going to make us understand what it means for us to stand for justice uh, for Palestine. She says there are no Palestinians. She says Islamophobia doesn't exist, and so on. This is one of the groups that have attacked us. We have been attacked by all of them on campuses. This is a whole bunch of them. They're not really that many people, but they are uh, well-positioned. They're well-financed. They receive funding from Addison. They receive support from the Israeli government. There are Israelis now who are asking, requesting Freedom of Information Act from the Israeli government to find out what kind of collaboration is going on between the Israeli government, Israeli ministries, and these groups in the United States. There is very strong collaboration between the two and many of them. And in addition to that, we on campus are, and in San Francisco Bay Area, as you may know, there is the Jewish Community Relations Council, which is actually very active and has, in 2010, I think, it's actually uh, succeeded in preventing a children's exhibit from Gaza children from being shown in the Auckland Museum. It was the same group that protested the students bringing Omar Barghouti to campus, and as a result, we were punished and our faculty lines were taken away from us. Oh, and then another group that's very big is Campus Watch, Middle East Forum, that was created by Daniel Pipes, who's also called a leading Islamophobe by the Poverty Law Center. And what they did in this just past academic year, in 2000, let's say 2016 to the present, 2016 Palestinian students and other students on campus from all sorts of backgrounds, including Jewish students, they went and protested the campus visit of Mir Barakat, who's the racist mayor of occupied Jerusalem. He was brought to campus by Hillel, he was brought to campus because he was making a private visit to APAC chapter in San Francisco, American Israel Public Affairs Committee, the main Israeli registered Israeli lobby uh, in Washington. He was coming to make a fundraising, and then he wanted to come to San Francisco State. So Hillel, San Francisco Hillel, which is not a campus organization, along with Hillel on campus, along with the Jewish Community Relations Council, wanted to bring Mir Barakat to speak on campus, obviously, Students on our campus, our campus that's known for social justice, said, no, this is not okay. And they went and protested and had a protest against Nir Barakat. They shouted, they used the megaphone and so on. Basically, Nir Barakat and the students, the faculty and the administrators who hosted them went and huddled in the corner, had the event. It wasn't a threat to students, even though Hillel claimed that this was their lives were threatened. And it was actually Nir Barakat was able to finish his event. He walked out from the front door, the same way he came in. The Hillel students were there and so on. And then the university, and but they claimed that the security of the participants in that event, the Jewish students, was threatened and that it was anti-Semitic and so on. The university went unhired. First of all, they tried to discipline Palestinian students, and they did. Secondly, and they actually singled out Palestinian students for that discipline. Palestinian students' names were given by people on campus to the Canary Mission, their names were put on the Canary Mission. Uh, the two main Palestinian young women who were charged, they received sexual threats, threats of rape. They received calls at their jobs. Their jobs were called and told that they should be fired. The Canary Mission blasted their information everywhere. They began being afraid for their safety. They requested support from the university. All the university would give them was saying, oh, we'll give you a police escort. And the students on our campus actually do not trust 
university police because university police historically has been actually uh, presenting and disciplining student activism, has been really curtailing this. And so students, Palestinian students and other students, don't trust university police. Fast forward, the university hired an investigative firm, an independent investigator, and said, investigate, find out what happened with the protest against Nir Barakat. The investigator did the investigation. They did a month and a half. They issued the findings at the end of August 2016. And in the findings, they said there was nothing about it against Jewish students. This was specifically directed against Barakat and against Israel and its policies. There was nothing about it um, anti-Jewish. There was no threat to security or anybody who was present in there. And the university published the findings on its university website. Incidentally, this also coincided with reports, similar reports coming out about the CUNY, City University of New York, and UC, University of California at Irvine, say exactly the same thing, that there were pro-Israeli students who were saying that Palestinian activism on campus is threatening their security and safety, not just making them uncomfortable, threatening their security. And the three reports came out at the same time saying this is not true. The students are protesting Israeli policies, Israeli government policies. They are against Israel. There is nothing against Jews about it. And half of the people who are involved on campuses, anyway, Students for Justice in Palestine are Jewish. The report came out at the end of August. The university claimed it, published it. September 7, 2016. This is, I'm just talking about this last academic year. Campus Watch launched a new campaign attacking and demanding that our university president and the collaboration with the Palestinian University and Najah National University in Nablus, Palestine, and basically started the Twitter campaign against me in particular, calling me again, as Amcha has called me in 2013-2014, terrorist, uh, anti-Semitic, collaborating with terrorists, Jew-hater, and so on and so forth. The campaign spread, there were thousands of tweets about it and so on, because we have an agreement. I initiated and proposed and basically the university adopted and submitted it through all the channels. It was vetted at every single level. And then it finally, after seven months, it landed on the president's desk and he signed it because this is the way university initiatives work. Of collaboration with Al-Najah National University, one of the premier Palestinian universities, that the president of San Francisco State himself said that he really wanted to have agreements with uh, sites in Arab and Muslim communities. And since I am the founder and the director of this program, Arab and Muslim Ethnicity and Diasporas, I thought, yes, I will start with the universities I know best. I am a scholar of Palestine. I'm a Palestinian. I'm activist on Palestine. That's why I was hired in the first place in 2007, for my scholarship, for my activism, for my community relations, and so on. And so, of course, I will go to Palestinian universities. And I created this agreement. And so they were trying to undermine this agreement, calling Palestinian universities terrorist universities, in order for them to discredit Palestinian universities and in order for them to say, to discredit the campaigns to hold Israeli academic institutions accountable for participating in perpetuating the occupation, racism, and colonialism of Israel against the Palestinians. Instead of them saying, let the Israeli academic institutions be accountable, what they were doing is they're saying, okay, we're going to target Palestinian uh, universities. This was in September 7, 2016. October 14th, 2016, a few weeks later, like a little bit over a month later, students were going to meetings in the morning, actually students who were not Palestinian, Pacific Islanders and other students with whom we work and organize and act on campus and so on. They saw uh, posters 
of me that calls me Jew hater, posters of a caricature of me, anti-Semite terrorists and so on all over campus. And they also saw posters at the same time, posts all over campus of students, our active students who were part of the protests against Nir Barakat and other protests and so on. They call them actually students for justice in Palestine. We don't even have a chapter for students in justice in Palestine. We have General Union of Palestine students. We have Muslim Student Association, Muslim Women Student Association. We have a large coalition of students from all sorts of groups and all sorts of backgrounds who support justice for Palestine as part of the indivisibility of justice, which is understood. It happens. This is our politics. There were 26 posters, posters with weed glue all over campus, everywhere on campus. And weed glue, you know that if you want to put weed glue, you want to put posters in weed glue, you need to have at least one person holding, putting the weed glue, another person doing it, another person as a lookout. Our question was that how did these posters come to be on the main quad on campus, right in the main pole in front of the library, which is a very well-lit place, which is always populated by police cars and police going around and harassing students and so on. How come did this happen on campus and stayed up? One of the main places that for me is very disturbing is that some of these posters were put up right at the entrance of the garage of where the administration building is. All the administrators from the president down went and parked their cars that day. It did not bother them. Either they didn't see them, they didn't bother them, they saw it as business as usual. They didn't think it was Islamophobic, anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian. They just went about it. And then we learned later on, it was the students who took down the posters. We learned later that actually the university was aware of the posters that were put up and didn't do anything about it because they were busy with all sorts of other things. And then when they got around to doing it, they decided that they wanted to protect the freedom of speech of Horowitz, that David Horowitz and Canary Mission, these were signed by David Horowitz Freedom Center and Canary Mission, actually they claimed responsibility for it, that they have protected speech, but the racism and the Islamophobia and the, the harassment, the bullying, the intimidation, the vilification of us, the fact that we are being made to feel unsafe on our own campus didn't really matter. The poster stayed up. Until now, the, the chief of police of the university called me the day after, and he said to me, I would like to meet with you. I said, I have two questions for you. One, how did the posters come to be put up when you guys are all over the place all the time? And I know you've harassed my students because I've been there many times, and I had to step up and give my university, my faculty card, to stop them carding the students and intimidating them. And two, why did they stay up? How did they come to be put up, and why did they stay up? Now, this was October 14, 2016. Until now, we don't have an answer. We don't have an investigation. So one of the things we are demanding is a public, transparent, independent investigation to find out what's going on at the university because our university is not dealing with it. Fast forward, these attacks continued. In December, at the end of December, when actually December 21st, when Trump was elected, as you know, in Berkeley, a lot of the students walked out the first day of classes, but San Francisco State classes began after January 20th, the inauguration of Donald Trump. So students started at that time organizing together in a coalition a series of teachings that we had from January 25th onward until the last one, I think it was January 30th, around that time, on different topics that concern the students' sanctuary, campuses, uh, Islamophobia, the whole question of academic freedom, everything that concerns the students. And I spoke to two of them, many of my colleagues at the faculty, uh, spoke at many of them. Students came. It was a very lively 
interesting debate. And actually, the, the January 30th one happened two days after the Muslim uh, ban was announced, and then people had the airport action. So we had all the media descent on campus. And of course, San Francisco State claimed credit. They issued the release that San Francisco State organized the teaching. They did not. It was, it was us. You know, the students and faculty and the union and so on who organized it wasn't really, didn't really come up from the administration. Among the things that the students wanted to organize was a fair called Know Your Rights. Because we have a lot of students who are undocumented. We have Muslim students who are targeted. We have Arab students, Palestinian students, students of color. There is a lot of stuff that has been really draconian on campus of kind of tightening public space and preventing students from protesting and so on. So the students came about and along with the faculty union, along with some faculty members and said, okay, we would like to organize something, a fair so students know what their rights are. If they are approached by ICE, if they are approached by the FBI, if they are approached by law enforcement, they need to understand what's going on. They began actually December 21st, which was right around the holidays, the, the winter holidays. And they continued organizing. In February, Hillel found out about it, and they demanded that they want to be part of the fair. The students told them, the, the members of the organizing committee for the No U.S., they said, no, actually, Hillel cannot have a table. They're more than welcome students to come and attend and learn and so on. But we cannot have a table of Hillel. And in my mind, this is not what the students said. This is what I would say. It's like having a fair at the university and giving tables to the CIA and the FBI and ICE. At the same time, when you have students who are undocumented, you are saying this is a sanctuary campus. If it's a sanctuary campus, you're not going to bring people who are actually going to represent threat and make other students being afraid. The organizing committee, there's two things that happened. First of all, there was no space. They had already given the tables to everybody and some groups were doubling up. And secondly, they did object to Hillel having a table because of its history and its, uh, what it has been doing on campus and so on. Hillel insisted that it has to be present at everything. They were told, you're more than happy to come in and, it, and they said, no, Jewish students are being excluded. This is anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. As you told me, you began by asking me, Jewish was for peace was there. They had a table. They signed up 14 students, including Hillel members who were coming and going. So this whole thing about anti-Semitic and so on, it doesn't really work. Okay, But this is one of the claims in the lawsuit. And this is one of the claims that the pro-Israeli lobby is, is basically claiming. And Hillel has been directly linked to student harassment on many campuses. Mm-hmm. Yes, it has been dealing to student harassment. Students are actually wondering, they always ask, how did uh, the Canary Mission know who the students who were organizing? First of all, nobody knows what Canary Mission is. People suspect it might be a front for this or that, but nobody knows what it is. And so we don't have anybody identifiable on campus that is known as, as Canary Mission. We keep wondering, how did the names of these seven students be given to Canary Mission, that they would be placed on Canary Mission and then they become subject to rape threats, to harassment, to fear, and so on. That's one thing. How did the Campus Watch and Canary Mission know which are the strategic places on campus? I go to campus, you go to a campus. If you're not familiar with it, you do not know which are the more important places to put posters and which are the less important places. We wouldn't know unless we are from that campus. If we are from that campus, we know that the main quad in front of the library, that's one of the most important spaces on campus. We know that Malcolm X Plaza is one of the most. We know that the main thoroughfare or 90s and Holloway, where there is the Muni, the shuttle that goes to BART, the buses where the students come, this is the main, main thoroughfare. We know that this is very important. If you are not on campus, you wouldn't know. You could hit or miss, okay? 
And we know that in order for anybody to put up posters, actually they need to be stamped. According to the university policy, they need to be stamped. Otherwise, they're not allowed. The university goes around and tears them down. And they've done it. They've done it in 2016 when there are uncomplimentary posters that appeared against President Wong. They were taken down within half an hour. Okay, so why were these posters allowed to stay up? I mean, how come those were not freedom of speech? And this is freedom of speech of David Horowitz. Both of them were like, you know, maligning and so on. Why would you allow them uh, to stay? So we know that somebody on campus, there are groups on campus who actually have participated, have participated in harassing students, have participated in this. So it was for students who are vulnerable, who are going to be in a fair, who need to feel in a safe space to be able to learn about their rights and so on. It doesn't make sense to invite ICE or to invite a group that may actually be threatening to them. So that was the decision, and plus the fact, pragmatic reality, that there was actually no, no capacity. But what happened is that the Vice President for Student Affairs, Dr. Lolo Hong, apparently she has uh, coffee days with the director of Hillel, who is not from campus, he's actually from San Francisco, he's a staff, hired staff, who is supposed to be the boots on the ground at San Francisco State. She has coffee dates with him, and he explained that he has a grievance. And then basically she went and initiated a whole investigation of the organizers of the Know Your Rights Fair based on a coffee date. Until now we've been asking, the students have been asking, we need to see this grievance. Where is the grievance? We haven't seen. There is nothing written about it. Now, it's very interesting because by contrast, in January I filed the grievance. I was what is called the statutory grievance because the university has gone back, breached my contract of uh, hiring, giving us three faculty members so we can build a real program, a viable program. We don't get any budget. We don't get staff. We have nothing. It's one-person program. I'm supposed to be doing everything. And we know the problem of the token. So it doesn't, it's a recipe to either overwork me, which is what the case is, overwork me, make me unhealthy, like wear me down and so on, or basically let the program go go away. I mean, these are the two options. There are no other options. And both of them are unacceptable. We have a faculty union. We have collective bargaining agreement. And our rights are supposed to be protected. I'm not supposed to be working more than other people. I'm not supposed to be having this big load. This is, doesn't make sense. I filed the grievance. And as a result of my statutory grievance through my union, my union filed the grievance on my behalf. So the university would stop and actually work it out and give us the program that we need, which is very popular among the students. We have 22 courses. We don't have space in our classes. They're over. You can imagine a course on Islamophobia. Everybody would want to take it on campus. And this is the courses we offer. And so the university asked me to file a grievance based because I did claim discrimination. They asked me to file. I had to document everything and file a grievance. Now, what's interesting is that the oral grievance, the casual grievance by Hillel against the students and the organizers of the Know Your Rights Fair gets very much rushed and zealously investigated and so on. We still don't have paper. We don't even have a piece of paper that says this is the grievance. And my grievance that is well-documented and well-established and establishes a pattern of Islamophobia, anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian discrimination on campus is being ignored. I filed it in February. Today we are in August. I still haven't heard what's going on. I do not know what's happening. I sent emails, nobody responds, and so on. It's very clear the discrepancy between the two issues. On May 3rd, we have a second set of posters that was put up also by David Horowitz and by the Canary Mission. Now, these posters, they had posters. They didn't put mine again. They put posters against what they called SJP, and they put the names of the same students that they have put them up in October. And they also put new poster that has the picture of Rasmiya Ode, 
they're calling her a terrorist, and then they say JVP lover and uh, SJP lover, uh, attacking both Jewish Voice for Peace as well as Students for Justice in Palestine. Now, the students went around and began taking down the posters. As they were taking them down, the people who were putting them up, they were putting them up, and the university police did not do anything. They basically, again, argued that they were protecting the freedom of speech. When students confronted the vice president for student affairs under whose auspices the university police and everybody else were, saying, why is this okay? This is really a problem. And one of the students wrote a letter to the president of the university, copied everybody, a lot of people on it, and so on, and said this is unacceptable. The response of the vice president for student affairs was said that, oh, we don't have evidence because the students tore them up. One of the students responded and said to her, well, we have, we have evidence of the October 14th David Horowitz process. How come you didn't investigate those? And we're still waiting for the questions that I asked, you know. She's a professor, Abdelhadi. I asked oh, the university police, and we still don't know what's going on. She said, oh, uh, mistakes were made. Moving forward, things will be different. And we said, okay, so are you going to investigate? Are you going to go after Horowitz? She said that they actually called Horowitz, and Horowitz admitted that these were his posters, but they're not going to go after him legally, even though they consider what he did trespassing on university property, and even though there was no admission. So now, when the lawsuit was filed on June 19th, and the lawsuit has basically three different issues, has the protest against Barakat, the Barakat affair in spring 2016, it has the uh, Know Your Rights Fair, and then it regurgitates all the garbage and all the false accusations that AMCHA uh, launched against me in 2013-2014, and they all were, were proven to be wrong, that I did not misuse university funds. There have been multiple, multiple audits, including five-year audit of my international travel, that the university has conducted, and every single audit turned out that I didn't do anything wrong, that all my paperwork is quick, clean. It's clean. The university investigation, the university lawyer, everybody said so. The university president issued a press release after that. took a very long time, but he issued it and so on. They regurgitate that and say, oh, you know, she misused university funds and she went to meet with terrorists and so on. And they refer to a trip on which I organized a delegation and we met with 189. I organized a meeting with 186 or 89 Palestinians. Among them, there were two people that they latched on. Sheikh Ra'id Salah, who is the founder of the Islamic Movement of Palestinians in Israel, and Leila Khaled who is a Politburo member of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. They didn't look at all the other people. They latched onto them because their interest was that to whip up anti-Islamophobia, the war on terror, uh, anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab sentiments in order for them to make a case. So what they are doing also in this lawsuit, again, is that they're using misconceptions, mischaracterizations, falsehoods, allegations, outright lies in order for them to create an impression in public space that there is anti-Semitism at San Francisco State. And who's not going to be against anti-Semitism? Everybody wants to fight. And of course, we want to fight every single injustice that exists. Every one of them with the same strength that we fight everything else. The problem is that, that actually this is not true. This is not what's going on at San Francisco State. Historically, I have worked, I've had alliances and colleagues and comrades and sisters and brothers in the Jewish community. And historically, because actually Jews, who do not agree with Israeli policies and who disagree with the whole Israeli settler colonial project have historically said that we do not want Israel to speak in our name. There has never been a consensus among Jews about what Israel stands for. Historically, since 1897, when the first Zionist conference was built in Basel, Switzerland, headed by Herzl, and even before that, there was never a consensus. There was always debate 
around whether this is the solution to anti-Semitism or is it the solution to actually struggle and fight with other people to change the whole society rather than create another ghetto for Jews. And now it is called in Israel. And now Israel is building all the walls around it, as you know. So this is not true. This is bogus. But they create the impression and people, what they do is they're using it as a chilling effect. This is McCarthyism. This is a new wave of McCarthyism to scare people into, A, scare people in not saying anything, using us to scare other academics, making me as an example that, look, this is what we are doing. This is what it means if you are going to be speaking up for Palestine. You have no time to do your scholarship. You have no support for your program and so on. You end up doing the job of three to four different people. You end up being overworked. Is this what you want? No, this is not what you want as an academic. Nobody wants that. No human being wants it. So then people are not supposed to be participating or advocating for justice in for Palestine or speaking up about Palestine or teaching or researching or doing any of that stuff. So this is one of the things. And at the same time, also, they are very much allied with all the right-wing agenda in this country. When you're talking about Milos, Ann Coulter, Horowitz, you know, there were many of them, uh, Spencer, all of them, and what happened in Charlottesville over the weekend and so on. They're allied. They are all part and parcel, Breitbart. They're all part and parcel of the same group of people who are actually include a lot of anti-Semites, include neo-Nazis, include white supremacists. They are part of the same group of this right-wing fascist, injustice, very well uh, funded, very well connected, but actually have a very uh, big agenda of injustice. They are allying themselves with each other, and they are trying to crush any kind of possibilities of dissent anywhere. So they're using us first. Do you think that that's the reason that the attacks at SF State have been so consistent? There was a similar lawsuit at Berkeley, and there's been some stuff, but nothing as consistent as it's been at SF State, where it's just this onslaught. Uh, Why San Francisco State? Why us? Because we have a program, the Arab and Muslim ethnicity and diaspora studies program. Our program defines itself as a justice-centered knowledge production program. We teach justice. We are inspired by the spirit of 68. We are inspired by the strike, the longest strike in the history of the United States, of students in 1968, students struck and said, we would like, by the Black Student Union and the Third World Liberation Front, we want to revamp the curriculum. We don't want only to be taught Eurocentric knowledge. We don't want to be taught only colonial knowledge. We want to be taught about our own communities. We want to validate the lived experiences of communities. We want to be able to learn the oral histories and so on. And as you know, San Francisco State also prides itself being the campus of Richard Oaks, who went and took over Alcatraz. I mean, this is a campus that historically has been for social justice. Interesting enough, if you read the lawsuit, the first page of the lawsuit actually cites an article by the co-founder of AMCHA, Tammy Benjamin, who is one of the people who started attacking us back in 2013, implementing their own institute's agenda of attacking people who advocate for Palestine. She has a chapter in one of the books in which actually she argues that the worst thing that ever has happened was the strike in 1968, the creation of the College of Ethnic Studies, and the fact that the Ahmed Studies program is founded within the College of Ethnic Studies. We are successful. We have students who join our classes. We have students who are mining with no resources. We have the Edward Said Scholarship. We have the Edward Said Mural. We have the agreement with Al-Najah National University in Palestine. Our students are thriving. They're doing so well. They're going to graduate studies receiving fellowships, and so on, and they are studying very relevant topics. And that is unacceptable. That is unacceptable to the Israeli lobby because they believe that nobody is allowed to be speaking on Palestine. It's not 
They're not actually interested in debate. They are interested in silencing all our voices, and they are aligning themselves with the most right-wing agenda of chilling any kind of dissent and reintroducing uh, neo-McCarthyism. And they believe that if they win at San Francisco State, they are going to go against other campuses everywhere else and shut it down. And we are saying no. We are going to reclaim. We reclaim the social justice mission of our university. We are going to continue defying this and resisting this attempt to chilling and silencing our voices. Students, me, and uh, our community, and we have support from all our communities. We have so much support from everybody around the world, from feminists, from anti-Zionist Jews, from Jewish Voice for Peace, from International Jewish Anti-Zionist Network, from students, from the union, from the strikers of 1968, from the faculty, from student groups, from community groups. Everybody has been very supportive, and everybody sees it for what it is. We are not going to take this attack. We are going to fight it. We are filing a motion to dismiss this lawsuit next Monday. We are not accepting it, and we're going to continue fighting. And we will win, because justice is on our side, and truth is on our side. Just to add on to that, there was an open letter signed to President Wong and the California State University Board of Trustees that was signed by all kinds of academics and labor activists from around the world defending you and defending the program. And the letter is like a page and a half long, maybe, and then the list of signees is like four pages. So, And by to... the way, the list of signees, this is not even the most recent one because we are very short-staffed. So it takes time for us to compile the names and so on. But everybody is volunteer. And also to tell you, there is that. There is also the letter from the California Scholars for Academic Freedom. There is the letter from Middle East Studies Association. There have been multiple letters from all the academic associations of American studies to the U.S. Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel, to historians, to oral historians, uh, Feminists for Justice in Palestine, National Students for Justice in Palestine. There is all sorts of support because it is not just about me. I mean, yes, I am named in the lawsuit, but this is about trying to silence us. This is about saying we're not going to allow you to happen. And if we are able to silence a senior Palestinian faculty member, me, Okay, they are going to go against after the junior people, they're going to go after the students, they're going to go after everybody else. And the fact of the matter that we have an institutionalized program. If they destroy the program, they can destroy anybody else who would to teach about Palestine anymore. And the people will find it. The other thing that actually is very interesting that you reminded me of, the lawsuit was filed June 19th. June 19th is the time after the faculty has gone for the summer research, students have gone for summer research. This is the time when people rest, when faculty catches up on their research, catch up on vacations with their families, this is what people do. But the lawfare project and the pro-Israel lobby, they are fully staffed, they have money, they have resources at there. So they do something like this. Specifically, the timing is not coincidental. It is to take advantage of the fact that we have very little resources. We have the power of the people behind us. They have the money, they have the intimidation, they have the bullying, they have the state of Israel, and they have the government of Donald Trump. Okay, good for them. We're not part of that. We are not part of that. We dissociate ourselves from everything that they stand for. But they do it at that time in order for them. They took the initiative. Basically, they do it. And by the time we were able to put ourselves together, organize, honestly, I was also really embarrassed to even ask my colleagues for support and so on, because I know this is very precious time for them. It's really, really difficult. And they do it specifically on that. That's why. Mm-hmm. And if you also recall that this is the same time also they started this anti-BDS uh, Senate law. But even with that, we know that some senators now are backing off and they're saying, no, 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 I don't want to associate myself with it. This is not, this is not okay. This is, and ACLU actually joined 
in a lawsuit against the anti-BDS law in Congress, saying this actually is unconstitutional. This is against the, fair, the first amendment. This is against freedom of speech. So more and more and more and more forces are actually joining the struggle for justice and for Palestine, seeing it for what it is, part of the indivisibility of justice. And the pro-Israelis are unable to accept that. It's the same way as Netanyahu and his government are lashing out against the Palestinians. They do not accept anybody who stands up and says to them, they don't even allow people who have signed BDS things to go to enter Israel. I mean, look, they are afraid of the power of the word. They are afraid of people speaking up their minds because they are in the wrong, because they only do their deals in back rooms, in CD channels, in this whole strong army and devious ways of doing it, because this is what the forces of injustice do that all the time. Historically, if we read, so the history is what is, we are transparent, we are open, we're accountable to our communities, we are for the truth, we are for justice, we are allying ourselves with everybody, with all the struggle for justice, and people are allying themselves with us. So at the end, it may take a long time, and they are draining us, of course, they're taking a lot of resources, and of course, it is very, very difficult battle, and I'm not... Uh, trying to sugarcoat it. It is very difficult. But at the same time, we have no choice. We have no choice but to fight it because this is an imposed battle on us. It's an imposed battle and we're going to fight it. We have no choice but to actually stand up for justice. Rabob Abdulhadi is the director of the Arab Muslim and Ethnicities Diaspora's Studies Program at San Francisco State University. She spoke with Josh Wilner. For more information about the campaign to defend Professor Abdul Hadi, visit vomina.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. This week, we mark the ninth anniversary of the death of celebrated Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish, who passed away on August 9th, 
2008. NYU professor Sinan Antun will read some of Mahmoud Darwish's poems that he translated, as well as poems from a book entitled, Unfortunately, It Was Paradise. Sinan Antun's co-translation of Unfortunately, It Was Paradise was nominated for the Pan Prize for Translation in 2004. Think of others. As you prepare your breakfast, think of others. Do not forget what doves eat. As you wage your wars, think of others. Do not forget those who seek peace. As you pay the water bill, think of others, those who are breastfed by clouds. As you return home, your home, think of others. Do not forget those who live in tents. As you sleep and count the stars, think of others. There are those who cannot find space to sleep. As you free yourself with metaphors, think of others, those who lost their right to speak. As you think of distant others, think of yourself and say, I wish I were a candle in the dark. I thought that I had died on Saturday. So I said, I must stipulate something in my will. I did not find anything. I said, I have to invite a friend to tell him that I am dead. But I did not find anyone. I said, I must go to my grave to fill it. But I did not find the way and my grave remained empty. I said, I must do what I must. Write the last line on shades, but the water spilled onto the letters. I said I must do something here and now, but I did not find an act worthy of a dead man. I screamed, this death has no meaning, absurdity and chaos in the senses. I will not believe that I have died a full death. Perhaps I am somewhere in between. Perhaps I am a retired dead man spending his short vacation in life. Mercy Bullet I am jealous of the horse when its leg is broken and it feels the insult of its inability to attack and retreat in the wind, they treat it with the mercy bullet. As for me, if something is broken in me, physical or moral, I ask that a professional killer be found. Even if he is one of my enemies, I will pay him his fees 
and the bullets cost. I will kiss his hand and the gun, and if I can write, I will praise him with a precious poem, and he would choose the rhyme and the meter. With shyness, with shyness, I listen to an old song on a scratched record. With shyness, I smell the scent of a rose that is not mine. With shyness, I scratch a body part. With shyness, I use my five senses. With shyness, I succumb to my sixth sense. With shyness, I live. as if I am the guest of a gypsy who is about to depart. In Jerusalem, I mean inside the old wall. I walk from one epoch to another, without a memory to correct me. There, prophets share the history of the sacred, They ascend to the heavens and return less crestfallen and less sad. Love and peace are sacred and coming to the city. I was walking over a slope and thinking, how can narrators disagree on the light's speech in a stone? Do wars break out because of a stone's dim light? I walk in my sleep, I gaze in my sleep. I see no one behind or before me. All this light is for me. I walk, run, fly, and become someone else in the manifestation. Words bloom like grass from Isaiah's prophetic mouth. You will not be safe unless you believe. I walk as if I am someone else. My wound is a white evangelical flower. My hands two doves on the cross, flying and carrying the earth. I don't walk. I fly and become someone else. There is no place and no time. Who am I? I am not I in the presence of the ascent. But I think only the prophet spoke classical Arabic. What else? What else? A female soldier shouts suddenly. It is you again. Didn't I kill you? I said, you killed me. And like you, I forgot to die. There is no city in the city, no here except there, and no there except here. The poem is called The Butterfly Effect, which is the um, same title of his last collection published in 2008. Athar al-Farashati Athar al-Farashati la yura أثر الفراشة لا يزول هو جاذبية غامض يستدرج المعنى ويرحل حين يتضح السبيل هو خفة الأبدي في اليومي أشواق إلى أعلى وإشراق جميل هو شامة في الضوء تومئ حين يرشدنا إلى الكلمات باطننا الدليل 
هو مثل أغنية تحاول أن تقول وتكتفي بالاقتباس من الضلال ولا تقول أثر الفراشة لا يرى أثر الفراشة لا يزول I Belong There by Mahmoud Darwish Translated by Carolyn Forche and Munir Al-Akish I belong there I have many memories I was born as everyone is born I have a mother A house with many windows Brothers, friends And a prison cell With a chilly window I have a wave snatched by seagulls A panorama of my own I have a saturated meadow In the deep horizon of my word I have a moon A bird's sustenance And an immortal olive tree I have lived on the land Long before swords turned man into prey I belong there When heaven mourns for her mother I return heaven to her mother And I cry So that a returning cloud might carry my tears To break the rules I have learned all the words needed for a trial by blood I have learned and dismantled all the words In order to draw from them a single word Home That was Sinan Antun reading the poem I Belong There from Unfortunately It Was Paradise, selected poems of Mahmoud Darwish. Sinan Antun's co-translation of Unfortunately It Was Paradise was nominated for the Penn Prize for Translation in 2004. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.